Welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you've been listening to us for a while, you know that we've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and other people who explain the strategies they use to build mental muscle. While we take a short break, every Monday we'll be sharing one of our 10 most popular episodes. Now let's get into today's top episode. My guest is Dan Harris. You might have seen him on ABC News, Nightline, or Good Morning America. Maybe you even witnessed him having a panic attack on Good Morning America a few years ago. He found himself on live TV, unable to finish reading the news. That incident inspired him to get help. And one of the things that has helped him manage his anxiety is meditation. But he wasn't a firm believer in meditation at first. He was pretty skeptical. So if you've questioned whether meditation is right for you, stick around and hear what Dan has to say about it. It might change your mind. In this episode, Dan shares the biggest ways meditation has changed his life. And he's also sharing how you can get started with meditation, as well as how it could physically change your brain. Make sure to stick around until the end for the therapist's take. This is the part of the episode where I'll give you my take on the strategies Dan uses to stay mentally strong. And I'll explain how you can apply those exercises to your own life. So here is Dan. He's mentally strong. This is his story. Dan, it is so good to speak to you. Uh, When I was writing my first book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, I had a section in there about meditation. And of course, my first reaction is, I'm going to talk about meditation, yet I know nobody's going to meditate when they read this. And so I was looking for a resource where I could try to convince people that, no, normal people meditate too. And that's when I first came across 10% Happier. And was thrilled to find it. And I quoted you in that book because I wanted to make it clear to people that meditation isn't just for for weirdos. It's not just something that monks do. It's something that all of us can incorporate into our everyday life. So first of all, thank you for that resource. And thank you for becoming the sort of the face of meditation for normal people. Because <laughs> uh, I think you've done a great job of normalizing it and making it clear that all of us can benefit benefit from meditation, but I also know that you didn't mean to be this guy, that it just sort of evolved over time. For my listeners who don't know the story, would you mind explaining uh, what happened on air and how it came to be that you started meditating in the first place? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I don't know how normal I am. (laughs) (laughs) I live with my son and also my niece, and she often comes up to me and tells me, uh, Dan, you're a weirdo. So, um, yeah, uh, but I guess I'm, I'm a little bit more approachable than, than people in robes. Um, I, yeah, I did not have any pre-existing interest in meditation before this whole thing happened to me that I'm about to describe. I, (laughs) I think I thought it was for weirdos, uh, whatever that means. But in 2004, I had a panic attack on Good Morning America a reasonably well-known show in the United States of America. And uh, I was reading the news. Uh, I was the news reader. That was a job that actually doesn't exist anymore, but they used to have somebody who come on the top of each hour and read a few headlines off the teleprompter. And the job at that time was done by a woman named Robin Roberts, who's now quite famous um, as the main host of, of Good Morning America. But I was filling in for her that day when she was out. And just a few seconds into my shtick, I just lost it. I couldn't breathe, couldn't speak, which is pretty inconvenient and embarrassing. And after I had the panic attack, I went to a doctor who is an expert in panic, 
I didn't even know there were doctors like that. And um, he asked me a bunch of questions. And one of the questions was, do you do drugs? And I kind of sheepishly said, yes, I do. And he gave me a look that communicated the sentiment of, uh, okay, I'll mystery solved. <laughs> and uh, the, the, the backstory there is I had spent a lot of time in war zones as a ambitious young reporter after 9-11. And uh, when I had come home in the midst of this, uh, after like six months in Iraq, I came home and I got depressed and I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs. And even though I wasn't doing it that frequently, and even though I was not high on the air, it was enough, according to this doctor, to change my brain chemistry and make it more likely for me to have panic attacks. And so that's what happened. And after that fateful meeting with the shrink, uh, that kind of set me off on a weird journey that I write about in depth in the book that ultimately landed me on meditation. And... um yeah, it had a big impact on my life. And uh, sorry, hold on. Who is it? Uh, this is a five-year-old coming into the room. Yeah. Do I know where your mom is? You mean my wife? Yeah. Um, no, I don't. But thanks for knocking. Peace. Okay. He has a like. I am on a private call. No, like with my mom. Oh, with with your mom. Okay, no, I'm not. Okay. He has it. like an unbelievable radar for when I'm doing a podcast. Kids he never great. comes to visit me unless I'm doing a podcast. <laughs> and you're lucky he was wearing pants this time because usually he's not wearing pants when he comes in. Anyway. That's perfect uh, that, though. It shows you're a real person in real life. And this is what <laughs> happens when you have to work from home, right? Exactly. Uh, yes. I had him, I was interview, interviewing uh, coach Pete Carroll from the Seahawks the other day and he came in and announced that we were having avocado toast for dinner and then <laughs> bolted. So that was weird. Uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, so that, that that meeting set me off that ultimately I, I, I landed on meditation. But as I said, I didn't really have any interest in the thing. But I, I started to see all this science around meditation that suggests it's really good for you. And then I started doing it and had a lot of benefits. And I'll shut up now and you can ask me anything you want. And here you are years later still talking about meditation, right? Yes. That Yes. So first off, I'd love to just talk for a minute about panic attacks. I'm a therapist and I have a lot of people who come into my office who will say things like I, I, you know, there's something incredibly wrong with me. They're really embarrassed by panic attacks. And then you hear other people who make off the cuff comments like, oh, I got this message from my boss and I had a panic attack, but they didn't really have a panic <laughs> attack. They just had normal anxiety. And it's difficult sometimes to explain to people what a full-blown panic attack is like. Do you have any words that you can use to describe what it's like to have a panic attack? Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of shame around it too, just to be clear. And I often do correct people when they say they had a panic attack over something minor. And I, it's obvious that they didn't have a, an actual panic attack. They right. might have had some anxiety. Um, we have this evolutionarily wired response to threat called the fight or flight response, which makes a lot of sense, especially in the context of living on the savannah and, uh, you know, being confronted with a tiger, uh, or, or a lion, whatever, whichever of those animals lives on the savannah. And yeah, you needed to have a flood of adrenaline released into your brain that would prepare you to bolt or to take on whatever threat was in front of you. And this uh, when it gets really strong can lead to a, a complete shutting down of the system. 
And often it's triggered by, it's a, it's kind of a misfiring or a, a malfunction of this ancient adaptive technique, which goes haywire. And you you have the physiological responses that you would have in the face of a genuine threat when instead you're in an elevator, as sometimes happens to me, or you're doing public speaking. And all of the things that would help you in the wild, like a, a racing heart that it would allow you to, you know, send blood out to the extremity, <laughs> send blood out to where it's needed and uh, uh, et cetera, you know, all of these physical responses, physiological responses, which can be helpful in some circumstances are incredibly unhelpful in these circumstances. So it's kind of anxiety on steroids with a massive physiological component. And some people report that it feels like they're having, they go to the hospital. A lot of people go to the hospital when they have a panic attack thinking they've had a heart attack. Yeah, I forget the statistic, but it's something like almost 10% of ER visits are actually anxiety-related, something yeah. along those lines, because it does. It, it often mimics the symptoms of a heart attack. And so a lot of people end up in my therapy office because they started out in the ER thinking that they were dying. And then a doctor said, here's good news and bad news. The good news is your heart's fine. The bad news is you probably have an anxiety disorder and you need to get that treated. So for some people, it's a huge sense of relief. For other people, they're still not convinced. They think, no, I'm having this physiological response. So obviously something's wrong with my body. And it takes a lot for them to learn, just as you explained, that they have sort of this faulty alarm system and their alarm bells are ringing, even though they're completely safe, but their body's reacting as if they're in some sort of life or death situation. Yep. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Other than the one you had on air, was that the first time you'd had a panic attack or had you had them before? Um, I had had weaker versions of that on the air because I do have a stage fright, which I think I described in my book is it makes it <laughs> my, my career had been a triumph of narcissism over fear. In other words, I really wanted to be on TV, but I had a lot of work, fear about it. So, uh, I had been able to manage it, but I think my ability to manage it got completely shredded by the fact that I was adding synthetic adrenaline into my system in the form of cocaine. Um, I have had subsequent panic attacks, uh, not totally full-blown, but kind of close in, uh, in situations where um, I get claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. And that's, um, yeah, that's really challenging for me. I've, I've gone through periods of time where elevators freak me out so much that I'll walk up, you know, 12, 13, 14 flights of stairs because I, I just won't, I can't deal with a small elevator. So now you can recognize then some of the things that are likely to trigger panic. Yes. And so that often happens. People who come into my therapy office will say, you know, gosh, I had a panic attack at the grocery store. So as long as I don't go to the grocery store again, I'll be fine. And then to their uh, dismay, they might then have a panic attack while driving over a bridge. So then they think if I just don't drive over bridges, I'll be fine. And sometimes panic attacks, we know what triggers them. For other people, though, they just kind of come out of the blue. I'm curious to know, has meditation helped manage them? Do you find that, that that's been helpful in, in dealing with panic attacks? So I, I'll give you the answer I'd traditionally been giving, and then I have a, an update to it. Traditionally, my answer to this has been um, meditation isn't, some, you know, it's not something, you know, when you have a panic attack, for me at least, it's not like I can hurl myself into the lotus position and it goes away. Right. Um, what it does do, 
meditation is it's really good preventative medicine uh, along with other things such as exercise, getting enough sleep, having a, um, a healthy diet. You know, the, the, as it's been explained to me by my doctor, the, the best way to ward off panic attacks is kind of do all the things that your parents might've annoyed you with, like all of the uh, things that I just listed above, you know, living a healthy life, because when you're worn down, you're more likely to panic per the doctor that I've been seeing for a long time. So that was traditionally my answer, but I've, I recently read a book that had a lot of impact on me that I've, I've to it, uh, a reasonable, but not, not overwhelming extent, been able to operationalize. The book is called, I have it here. The, the dare response, Barry McDonough. Um, and he had this guy, I think he's Scottish, had a lot of um, panic attacks himself and have figured out ways to deal with it. And one of them that has been, one of his techniques that's been really helpful for me is to say to yourself, and I've been able to do this in elevators a little bit, and even a little bit if I'm feeling a little jittery when I'm in public, when I, you feel the first kind of nasty little tendrils of panic, you know, rippling up through your torso, you can say, all right, bring it on do your worst. You, you turn yourself from the hunted into the hunter. You kind of do a U-turn on the panic and say, do your worst, because this is just going to be a set of sensations that will pass and that I have 100% certainty I can survive because it's happened before. So let's go for it. Show me what you got. And generally speaking, in the times when I've been able to do that, uh, nothing happens, which is incredibly liberating. Interesting. So I wonder then, instead of fighting it and wasting energy thinking, oh, I hope this doesn't happen. I hope this doesn't happen. To be able to just say, well, if it happens, then I'll be okay and I can get through it. I like that idea a lot. Because if, you know, I have not had, there's only really, there are only really two factors for me that trigger it, public speaking or, or claustrophobia. But with people who have um, the kind of panic disorder you were describing where it's just coming on and in you know, in the supermarket and then on a bridge and you just can't tell when it's going to come on, then your life just gets smaller and smaller and smaller because you refuse to do anything you associate with panic. Um, and in those cases, yeah, you really do need to take the bull by the horns. Right. I end up treating a lot of people who come in for depression, but then when we really examine things, we figure out, well, they have anxiety. And because they were trying to manage their anxiety, the world got smaller and smaller and smaller until it was really boring. And they didn't dare do a lot of the things that brought them joy and excitement in life. And consequently, they get depressed. So thanks for bringing that up. I think that's important for people to note that your anxiety can certainly take a grip and prevent you from doing things. But in your case, I mean, it's amazing to think that you have a fear of public speaking and yet you're speaking on the news, right? It seems for a lot of us just insane that you think, well, no, you can't possibly have a fear of public speaking. How do you do it? I'm always telling my kids, um, I only have one child who you just heard, but I, as I as mentioned uh, during the pandemic, we've, we've kind of... Uh, my wife and I and our son and then another family, my cousin and her daughter, all escaped New York City and moved into the suburbs together in one big house. So now I have basically two kids. And I'm always telling them uh, that the definition of courage or bravery is being scared, but doing it anyway. And I think that, you know, if you're doing something high stakes, 
uh, most likely you're going to be feeling fear and, um, courage or vulnerability as Brene Brown would call it is just the ability to power through that fear, not to pretend it's not there, but to recognize, okay, I'm feeling, uh, fear here, but to use that as, um, you know, you, you can, you can use that as a signal to you that's not that you're doing something important. And we actually have, um, one of the things I've done after writing 10% happier is I started a meditation app, which is also called 10% happier. And we, we, we have a course on there, like, um, about how to use meditation for stress. And we interviewed this incredible expert from Columbia university business school. Her name is Madupe Akinola. And she, her argument is that stress, you, you know, if you, you can use it to, you can tune into the sensations of stress in your body as a feedback for the fact that, you know, this is your body preparing you to act. You're about to do something important. And so there are ways that you can tune into that and use it as something empowering rather than what I've often done is use it some, as something to make me feel ashamed or cowed. Yeah. I, from a lot of people, if you just remind yourself of this is because I'm excited. This is because I'm about to do something big rather than thinking, oh no, here we go. I'm going to freak out or this isn't going well, or I shouldn't feel this way. And it tends to cause us to feel worse. Do you still get anxiety before you go on the news? You know, not that much anymore. Uh, but sometimes, sure. Sometimes. Uh, or when I'm giving public speeches, uh, I've been working recently with a curator from TED who's trying to get me to do a TED talk, uh, if I can figure out what it is what, uh, that I want to say. And I can tell you I will be freaking out before going on the TED stage if that ever comes to pass. So, yeah, I do. I, it's not like I've conquered it. I just, it's so important to me what I want, what I, particularly, particularly now um, that, I mean, I always felt very strongly about the news and but now that I have something that I want to say in the world that's a little bit different, where you know it's a mental health message, it's a public health message, it really feels like uh, the stakes are high and the p- potential impact on others is high, and so I can just use that to to as a source of strength while navigating my own anxiety. Yes, there's something about giving a, a TED talk or a TEDx talk. I gave one too, and that. It just feels like this is going to live on the internet forever. And uh, for those of us that aren't on the news normally, it just there's this anxiety about it. And I remember stepping off the stage thinking the last thing I sounded was strong because I was so nervous. But yeah. just like you, I said, all right, how do you power through this? How do you turn this anxiety into something that's helpful and usable? As far as uh, meditation and, and trying to encourage people to try it, I run into some common things in my therapy office, my coaching practice, or even in speaking engagements. When I encourage people to meditate, they come back with a lot of reasons why they shouldn't do it, why it's not going to work. Uh, if I run through a couple of those, I would love to hear your response to these, the reasons, I guess the most common reasons I hear about why people shouldn't meditate. For example, I often hear people say, I don't have time. What would you say to somebody who says, I don't have time to meditate? Okay, so this is my specialty, uh, dealing with pe- uh, people's excuses for not meditating. And let me just say from the outset, if you don't really want to meditate, don't do it. I'm not here to bully you into doing it. But if you have a sense that it would be good for you and 
you're coming up with lots of excuses not to do it, well, then I'm, I'm a good person to talk to because I've thought a lot about this. So time, I think, is the number one issue for people for not, for feeling like they can't or can't get over the hump to meditate. And I would say, first of all, just to validate that I get it. You know, I feel time starvation as well. And um, so one of the things we know about habit formation is that it's diabolically hard. We're not, I've already invoked evolution, but I'm going to do it again. We're not really wired for healthy habit formation. Evolution didn't really care about whether you flossed your teeth. It, It cared about, you know, basically just getting your DNA into the next generation. As a consequence, we're really good at threat detection or finding food, but we're not really good at at doing things that will make us happy while we're alive and hopefully propagating the species eventually. So just to know that is empowering. And the way to one way to deal with that is to lower the bar, to start small. And so one of my little mantras is one minute counts. You know, I, I think if you're doing one minute, and here's my other little mantra, which is daily-ish you're doing at least a minute most days, then it, then it sounds doable. And you can go from extrinsic motivation, meaning I'm doing this because people are telling me it's good for me, or I feel like uh, other, you know, the, the world is, is putting these expectations on me. If you start low, slow and, and lower the bar, you can move from extrinsic motivation to intrinsic motivation, which means, oh yeah, I'm getting a taste here of how helpful this could be. So I want to do it. And that's when you've really got legs, really when you can um, get the habit into your life in a meaningful way. That's good because I think a lot of people imagine themselves having to be in a quiet room for 30 minutes or an hour every day. And they think, I just don't have time for that, which most of us don't. But if you can say one minute, we can all find one minute somewhere in the day to do it and to know that you don't have to be, you don't have to have a meditation room or you don't have to go to a yoga retreat. You can just do it wherever you are. So thank you for that reminder. Another big one that I hear is people will say, well, I'm not good at it. I tried it once and it didn't work. My mind just wasn't, isn't wired for meditation. What do you say to somebody who maybe says that? So this is the other, this is the second or <laughs> there, these two time and um, I can't do it are, in competition for top one and two excuses for not meditating. This one is much easier because it is a complete misunderstanding of what meditation is. So let me just describe what meditation is. Uh, Mindfulness meditation, because there are a million flavors of meditation, but mindfulness meditation, which is the kind of meditation of which I am a proponent and is the kind of meditation that has been studied the most in the labs and has been shown to reduce your blood pressure, boost your immune system, rewire key parts of your brain associated with focus and uh, 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 emotional regulation and stress and compassion and self-awareness, all really compelling data that are coming out of the studies around mindfulness meditation. Beginning mindfulness meditation is very simple. Sit in a reasonably quiet place, or you can lie down if you'd like, stand even. Um, Bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. And if the breath is too stressful for you right now, the breath can be a loaded proposition given that COVID has pulmonary implications. And also the final, some of the final words of George Floyd were, I can't breathe. So if the breath is too stressful for you, you can just focus on the feeling of your body sitting or lying down or standing. You just kind of pick one thing to focus on. And then what's going to happen is inevitably you will get carried away by your inner narrator 
by the voice in your head, by millions of distractions over and over and over again. And the whole goal in meditation is not to defeat or uh, uh, um, uh, nullify any distraction. It's just to notice when you've become distracted and to start again and again and again and again. And this is like a golf game with a million mulligans. And this act of noticing when you've become distracted and starting again is meditation. This is like a bicep curl for your brain. And this act of noticing distraction and starting again is what shows up on the brain scans. That's the bicep curl. And when you do this, it's extraordinarily consequential because seeing how nuts you are, seeing how distractible you are, seeing what a cacophony it is in between your ears is, is a game-changing proposition because when you see how cacophonous it is inside your own mind, you are less likely to be owned by the cacophony. So you are getting more familiar with what your life is actually about. You may think your life is about lots of grand things, but in fact, your life is about when am I going to get a haircut? Do we have Oreos in the cupboard? Um, a, a desire to say something that's going to ruin the next 48 hours of your marriage, blah, blah, blah. That's what's going on in your head most of the time. And if we broadcast it out loud, you would be locked up. And so just seeing that, this non-negotiable fact of human existence, which is that your inner conversation is out of control, is incredibly liberating because the, the, the visibility is what defangs the narrator. I find it right. A lot of people come into my therapy office and they'll tell me some of their what they're actually thinking. And of course, they think they're insane and they think this is crazy that I think these things and nobody else thinks like this. Well, what they don't know is the last four people told me something very similar, mm -hmm. but yet we don't broadcast our inner dialogue. So we all think we're alone in, in the way that we think. And I, so many people will say that like about meditation. I'm just not good at it. I can't possibly do it. And I love that you explain it that way, that no, your mind is supposed to wander. It's not supposed to stay on track. Imagine if you were great at meditation the first time you tried it and you stayed focused. Well, then it, you wouldn't see any benefits from practicing. I mean, this, this, this is an art form that is millennia, millennia old, right? So if I handed you a flute right now, you wouldn't assume without any prior practice that you could play Jethro Tull solos. Like, that's not how it works. We don't make these assumptions with anything else, but people meditate once and think and notice how, how crazed their inner dialogue is and then tell themselves a whole story. By the way, that story is being told by the same narrator that's giving them all the other shitty ideas <laughs> and tell themselves a whole story about how they can't meditate. But it's based on a misconception that meditating entails or requires you to clear your mind. But clearing your mind is impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. And I think my job on the planet is just to explain that over and over and over again to people so that they understand what this practice is actually about, as opposed to what the traditional imagery around meditation, like the little statues at the airport spa might be telling you about what you should be experiencing, like some beatific bliss or whatever. That's just not how it's going to go. Better to think about it as like mental exercise. And then just the final thing I'd say is like, it's really important, and this is a skill that develops over time, to be able to like bring a sense of humor and warmth to this process because um, like we all have, and I've been kind of using this imagery recently, like we all have an inner dumpster fire. Like it's just a mess. And uh, we've got all sorts of 
trauma, many of us, or ancient storylines that were in, about superiority or inferiority or victimhood or whatever injected into us by our ancestors or by, the, by our parents or by the culture. And just knowing that you have a, an inner dumpster fire and, and being, uh, having a cooler relationship to it, you don't have to put it out. You don't have to give into it, but you can just have some warmth directed toward this mess b- makes your inner weather much bombier. And by the way, it, in, in my experience, just sort of leads naturally inexorably toward recognizing everybody else has got their own dumpster fire. And you see that you're not as separate as you might think. You're no longer walking around with the fallacy that your patients are, are articulating to you that you're uniquely broken. Everybody's broken. And that can lower feelings of isolation and also increase a sense of empathy and compassion for the people around you. And I, to me, this just seems like a key unlock for the health of the civilization. Like this, this attitude of having some warmth towards your own peccadilloes and neuroses and trauma is what will allow us to be happier people and better people. Oh, I love that you said all that. Uh, because it's so true. Uh, so many people, again, we think we're alone in our suffering. We think we're the only ones dealing with certain issues. We're ashamed of it. We're embarrassed by it. And we don't articulate it to other people. And we tend to be more empathetic towards others. And I think we could all benefit from more self-compassion and just recognizing, yeah, yeah, we've all been through stuff in life and we've all struggled with certain things and we all have a thing that is just harder for us than it is other people and to just accept that. So thank you so much for putting it so eloquently because I think, uh, and coming from you as somebody who's on TV and I imagine so many people look up to you and think this guy's got it all together and he's got everything all figured out. And the fact that you were willing to come forward and say, actually, I struggle with, with these certain things, it just must have a huge impact on so many people. So thank you for doing that. Uh, as far as the third big one that I hear from people is that they'll say it won't work for me. Maybe that works for other people, but meditation won't work for me. What would you say for somebody who's convinced before they even try that it's not going to do them any good? I assume what's behind that is a feeling of what we were just describing, like this kind of bespoke brokenness, this, this, the, the, uh, nobody's as fucked up as I am. And therefore I'm beyond repair. But, but the, this kind of gets me thinking about the whole reason I've derailed my TV career and taken a deep dive into the, <laughs> rather unusual and little weird field of meditation is because is is that there there's this insight this headline that to me is incredibly empowering and radical which is that it became clear to me when i started to look at the science around meditation that the mind is trainable that we are not stuck with the characteristics and qualities that we don't like about ourselves that all of the mental states that we want calm connectedness compassion gratitude generosity happiness these are not factory settings that are unalterable patience these are in fact mental skills that can be trained that 
is what the science around meditation is showing us, that you can change your brain and by extension, your mind by sitting quietly and uh, practicing for a minute or five or 10 or whatever it is you have the time to do, that over time you can change the, the way your brain looks in a brain scan, which is really unimportant w- when compared to what it's like inside your actual mind at any given moment. And then where it becomes most important is how are you actually showing up in the world? That's incredible news. And so for me, that the, I sometimes jokingly refer to myself as an evangelist for meditation. I'm not a believer of any sort, as a matter of fact. But if you think about what evangelists do, they spread the gospel. And the gospel literally translates, I think, from Greek or whatever language into good news. And the good news here is that the mind is tradable, that you can, you can change. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is doable uh, and it works it will work for you, whoever it is out there that's telling themselves that it wouldn't work for them. Because if it worked for me, I'm pretty sure it could work for anybody. And you're right. You bring up the fact that brain scans show it's different. Because I think sometimes people assume, well, no, you're just saying you feel better or you just, <laughs> it's a placebo effect because you think it'll work. Suddenly you feel better. But as you say, when scientists look at brain scans, there's literally a change in the brain. Yeah. Yes. Yes, significant changes. And so what, by the way, even if it was just a placebo, so what? Right. That's the other thing. But it's not. If it works, who cares why it works, right? Exactly. (laughs) There's a quote in your book. It's your second book, uh, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, which I think was an excellent follow-up, by the way. But you said, hurt more, suffer less. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because, of course, people say, I don't want, why would I hurt more? I'm going through my entire life trying to avoid pain. Why on earth would you tell me to embrace it? Okay, so th- this describes a phenomenon that is reported by many meditators because what we're doing in meditation is just boosting our self awareness, again, with the purpose of seeing our stuff more clearly so that we're not owned by it. But seeing your stuff more clearly, seeing all these various characters that may show up in your in your like inner eight ball. You remember shaking an eight ball and like various tiles come to the top. Well, yes. that's how, how some psychologists think the mind works, that we got these various programs, the angry you, the impatient you, the kind you, the ambitious you. And depending on the position of the eight ball, whatever tile uh, is in there, they're, they're all competing for salience at any given moment. And and so these story with these various inner characters we have, these various um, emotional qualities we have, um, they're very powerful. Um, but what we're trying to do in meditation is to see them clearly, as I said, so that they don't own you. But seeing them clearly can be painful because um, <laughs> that's just you, we, none of us gets born uh, into this existence without some pain. And so we can deny it. We can pretend it's not there. We can paper it o- paper over it with, you know, polypharmacy or alcohol or shopping or whatever coping mechanisms we come up with. But that's just shoving it into the recesses of our mind from which, from where it drives us blindly. What we're doing here in this practice is dragging it all out of the subconscious and in exposing it to some sunlight. And yeah, that process does entail some pain and discomfort. And so it is not uncommon for me now, as I have 11 years of meditation and a, a marginal increase in self-awareness, to notice when I'm in a, when I'm in a uh, tough conversation with my wife, for example, 
that I'm getting irritated and I can actually feel it in my body in ways that I never could before. And it's very uncomfortable. However, once I'm aware of it, I'm less likely to say something that's going to make my life miserable for the subsequent week. And that is massively valuable. So would I rather have a little bit of extra discomfort as a consequence of my self-awareness, but a happier marriage? Yes. Yes, always. And so there is a bit of um, increased hurt, but it does lower suffering for you and other people. And uh, by the way, you know, just going back to the exercise comp, who's going to exercise without feeling pain? You know, um, and so it, this is part of the process and this is how we grow. And so just the same as, you know, growing the muscle fibers in your bicep, when you want to grow your mental capacities, there's going to be some work and some suffering. Um, but that's just part of the process. It's amazing the extent we'll go to avoid pain and how much all that avoidance causes more suffering and we don't realize it. And so many of us just run from pain. We do anything we can to escape it. And then that in itself becomes the problem because we've spent so much time trying to avoid feeling uncomfortable. And then we have no confidence in our ability to handle uncomfortable situations when we face them. So I love the way that you talked about that, that it's okay to, to go ahead and embrace it up front. And then you prevent further suffering down the road. It's like an inoculation. Oh, that's a good analogy. Absolutely. Is it fair to say these days that, that you really are 10% happier than you were before you started meditating still? I think it's unfair to say it because it's way more than that. Really? Uh, yeah. I mean, first of all, the whole concept of quantifying happiness is absurd. And the title of the book, my, my first book, 10% Happier, was a joke, although my publisher didn't get the joke and tried to negotiate me up to 20 or 30%. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I I stuck to my guns. Um, but now that I'm stuck with math jokes the rest of my life, um, I, I kind of, my response is that the 10% compounds annually, like any good investment. And um, that's really been the, the true for me. Uh, again, I can't really quantify it, but I just, as I've gotten better at these skills of meditation, uh, which is designed, again, to boost your clarity, to boost your equanimity, to boost your compassion to um, boost your concentration, all of these mental skills that we're developing in this practice, they just show up in my life in really important ways. Now, it doesn't mean I'm, I, I don't you know, retain the capacity to be a schmuck in, in a thousand different ways. I'm definitely not perfect, but uh, I'm much happier and much easier to be around than I used to be. What do you notice specifically? Do you just wake up feeling happier? Do you get along with people better? What kinds of things? How has it changed your life specifically? I mean, that's a, I, that's a long answer. I mean, I literally write books about this to answer that very question. But let me just list a few benefits that I think are useful. That These benefits started to show up in my life very quickly. Um, but over time, they've just grown. One is a greater sense of calm. Calm is a bit of a tricky um, word because people, it goes back to the expectations people bring to meditation. They, they feel like if they sit down to meditate and don't feel immediately calm, they've failed. So it's not that every time I meditate, I am calm. It's that having the habit of interrupting the 
often mindless momentum of every day with a few sessions of seated meditation uh, can just boost my overall level of calm by sort of lowering the levels of frenzy that previously were uninterrupted in my life. You know, just kind of just lurching from one thing to the next, checking things off my to-do list, constantly leaning forward, toppling forward in every, never actually in the present moment. Uh, so uh, meditation doesn't, ne- the act of meditation won't necessarily magically make you calm in the moment you do it, but the net effect for me has been that I am much calmer than I used to be. A second benefit is um, that I'm more focused. You know, meditation is, as I keep describing, a kind of mental exercise where you do this repeated bicep curl of noticing you've been carried away. You know, you're trying to focus on one thing, the feeling of your breath, the feeling of your body, sounds in the environment. And then you are repeatedly and humiliatingly carried away by your inner dialogue. And over and over and over again, with hopefully with a sense of humor, you bring yourself back to your breath or whatever it is you're focusing on. The brain scans strongly suggest that this rewires the key parts of the brain associated with attention regulation. And I've really found that my ability to stay on task, which has never been very high, by the way, is is over time getting better and better. And then the third benefit is the most important for me, and it's this word mindfulness, which has become a buzz word. And often people don't I fear don't really know what they're talking about when they use this word mindfulness, but you can think of it very simply as the ability to see what's happening in your own mind without getting carried away by it. It's kind of a a self-awareness that can lead to lowered emotional reactivity because I'm aware, oh yeah, my wife's irritating me right now, but I don't necessarily have to be owned by that irritation and act it out blindly. There is a little bit of a a buffer between the stimulus whatever she said that's gotten me irritated, and my response. Instead of just reacting blindly, I can respond wisely. And that is a game-changing capacity. And then I guess I would add one more. I know I said three, but it's compassion, Um, which is, again, one of these, it's a tricky word because it feels um, fuzzy, gauzy. I don't really know what it means. Maybe you're lecturing me to be a nicer person. But in fact, is it, you can think of compassion as just the ability to, the, it's empathy plus the desire to act. So it's compassion is I can feel a little bit of your suffering and I have a, a desire to help you. I don't even have to act on it. Uh, but it's just that desire to be helpful to other people, which Um, so I'm not drowning in your emotion. I'm in an empowered state of having an empathetic connection to you, but, a uh, a leaning forward in a positive way to try to be of assistance and study after study has shown that people who are compassionate are happier, healthier, more popular, and more successful and, uh, compassion. There's another kind of meditation, uh, compassion meditation, a whole actually set of practices designed to boost your compassion, which that actually has become, those practices have become my principal practices because just in in my podcast, um, uh, also called 10% Happier, I interview happiness experts over and over and over again. And what people keep coming back to is that the key to human happiness is connection, is relationships. Uh, As uh, one expert has said it to me, the quality of your life is determined 
by the quality of your relationship, including, by the way, and she didn't say this, but I'll add it, your relationship with yourself. And you can have compassion for yourself. This is what goes back to the dumpster fire we're talking before. Can you see your inner ugliness? You know, for me, it's like often anger or greed. Can I see that not as something that's going to drive me into shame spirals, but as like the organism trying to protect itself? Some ancient adaptive pattern that no longer serves me, but I can, you know, blow it a kiss. Um, that's incredibly useful in terms of my, my own relationship with myself. And it, it has massive consequences for how you relate to other people. So anyway, I just said a lot. So sorry Well, I think, you know, who, who wouldn't want to practice meditation after hearing that? So you said it uh, keeps you calmer, separates you a bit from the, from the reaction when you have an emotion. You don't necessarily have to react to it. You stay on task better and you're more compassionate. I mean, who, who wouldn't want those four, four things to happen? And if it could be as easy as one minute a day of practicing meditation, it sounds like a really simple, fast, and easy way to start incorporating that in your life. Not to say that meditation is simple. It's... It's not. It's hard work, as you say. But what an easy way to say, I'm going to start improving my life. One last question for you then. For people who are struggling, for people who are saying, okay, I, I want to meditate, but I don't even know where to begin because it starts to get confusing with different types of meditation and different ways to learn it. What's your advice? I know you have some great resources out there between your books and your app and your podcast. What would you say is the best place for somebody to start if they are just interested in, med- in meditation but know nothing about it or where to even begin? Yeah, I'll try to give an answer that's ecumenical and not super um, self-promotional, <laughs> although I'll do a little bit of self-promotion, but I'll give you lots of options. Traditionally, in my so from my experience, I think there are three ways at least to get started. One is just like read a good book. That's how I started because when I started, there weren't any apps. Um, and I was reading books like uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn, uh, who's a, just a giant in the field. Or there's another book called Real Happiness by Sharon Salzberg. I gave that book to my mother, who's a one of the first uh, female full professors of medicine at Harvard uh, and a dyed-in-the-wool skeptic. I gave that book to her, and she started meditating. Um, uh so you can read a great book like that and just, you know, the instructions are pretty basic, you know, sit in a reasonably quiet place, pay attention to your breath. And then every time you get distracted, start again. It's not, you know, it's not calculus. Um, now it can get more complex in very useful ways from there, but the basic instructions are pretty simple. And for me, I did, I read, uh, some books and then I just started doing it for five to 10 minutes a day. And I did that for a year before I did anything else. Um, Another thing to do is to get an app. There are lots of great apps. Obviously, I'm partial to 10% Happier, but there are plenty of great apps out there. Um, And so just, you know, shop around, see which one has the kind of tone and uh, and feel that you like and and go for it. Um, The the third option is to go to in-person meditation. Now, that's hard right now. But eventually this pandemic will end. And there are meditation centers, both Buddhist meditation centers, Hindu meditation centers, or the um, transcendental meditation is, uh, you know, uh, derived from Hinduism. So they have centers. And then there are secular meditation centers uh, all over the country. And so just check out what's in your neck of the woods and uh, go see if you can learn in person, because a lot of people 
for a lot of people, that's a really powerful way to do it. So there are three options, hopefully not too self-promotional. Definitely not. I can say again, as somebody that read your book, because uh, I started with 10% Happier, it was a wonderful resource and I have recommended it to many people over the years because I think you do a wonderful job of breaking down meditation and making it clear about what it is and what it's not and make you make it really easy to understand. So I am sure people will check out your resources and will find lots of value in that. So Dan Harris, thank you so much for being a guest on the Mentally Strong People podcast. You definitely embody mental strength and you've given my listeners tons of information about meditation, why they should do it and how to get started. So thank you. Thanks for having me. By the way, are you on a boat? I am. So I live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys and it's kind of stormy out. So I was thinking, I was hoping it wasn't going to be too rainy or we wouldn't be rocking and rolling too much. And it's held off mostly. Thank goodness. (laughs) Nice. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, ahoy. Thanks. (laughs) Welcome to The Therapist's Take. This is the part of the episode where I'll give you my take on some of the strategies Dan says work for him. And I'll explain how you can apply them to your own life. Number one, start with one minute. When he's tempted to skip meditating for the day, Dan reminds himself that one minute counts and it helps him put the time in. That's a great idea because one minute is better than none. Often getting started is the hardest part. You might convince yourself to start working out or to start cleaning if you tell yourself you just have to do it for one minute. Then you might find you're willing to keep going once you get started. But there's a good chance you waste a lot of minutes every day by doing things that aren't great for you, like mindlessly scrolling through social media. Take back a little control over your time and push yourself to do something healthy, like meditate, for one minute. Number two, separate who you are from your thoughts and feelings. Dan talks a lot about separating himself from his angry thoughts or his anxious feelings. That's a common therapy strategy that we use to help people. So someone who thinks, I'm anxious, might benefit from reminding themselves that their brain thinks catastrophic thoughts sometimes. Anxiety is what you experience, not who you are. Or instead of thinking, I'm a bad person for thinking that way, you can learn to recognize that we all have some pretty ugly thoughts sometimes, and you don't have to judge yourself harshly for it. So remember, your thoughts and feelings are what you have, not who you are. Number three, Get professional help. Dan experienced depression and anxiety and ultimately a panic attack on national TV. He admits he'd been self-medicating with cocaine in an attempt to regulate his mood. Fortunately, the panic attack was a wake-up call that inspired him to get professional help. If you're struggling with something in your life and you don't know what to do to feel better or you've been attempting to make yourself feel better with unhealthy coping strategies, it's going to be hard to stop on your own you're likely to get caught up in a vicious spiral that's hard to break. Talk to a mental health professional who can help you break that unhealthy cycle. A doctor or mental health professional may recommend therapy, medication, or a combination of both. But the sooner you seek the help, the sooner you can start to get your life back on track so that you can feel better. So I highly recommend Dan's three mental muscle building strategies. Start with one minute, separate who you are from your thoughts and feelings, And don't be shy about asking for help when you need it. Thank you for hanging out with me today and listening to the Very Well Mind podcast.